Hello, I'm Eric Lawrenson, and welcome to Cap Times Talks, a podcast bringing you smart conversations about big topics in our city. On today's show, what's going to happen in the Wisconsin primaries? State primary elections are less than a week away, so today we're bringing you a conversation between two longtime political operatives in Wisconsin, Republican Keith Jilks and Democrat Tanya Bjork. In their chat from earlier this month with Cap Time state political reporter Jesse Apoyan, the two talk about their assessment of what's going on in the race for governor and the race for the U.S. Senate. They also talk about Wisconsin's reputation as a purple state, the biggest challenges facing their parties, and what it's like to forge a friendship across the aisle. Jesse kicked things off by asking both Jilks and Bjork to talk about their history working on political campaigns. I'll let her take things from here. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourselves, each of you, your history, how you got to where you are in Wisconsin, uh, how you got into politics, memorable campaigns, just sort of... That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Especially for me, who's been doing this for way too long. So my name's Tanya Bjork, and I am a political uh, consultant, communications consultant, um, <laughs> um, and uh, strategist on the Democratic side. So I have been doing this literally almost all my uh, adult working life. Um, I started out in politics um, when I was in college at University of Minnesota Duluth College Dems and got involved uh, there. And then my first statewide race was um, working um, for Paul Wellstone's um, 1996 race. So don't tell me how old you were then. I don't want to know. But I started out uh, in campaigns there and having had really the great opportunity to work uh, for Paul Wellstone. And then from there in 1997, I moved here to Wisconsin and worked, uh, did the Feingold um, 98 race. Um, And when politics and campaigns were a lot different, I think back then we spent... We capped ourselves at a dollar per voter, so we spent like five million dollars. And you know, now Keith is like, "What did you get to your hundred millionth dollar raise uh, so far the, earlier this week?" Yeah, so it's changed a little bit since I started. Um, and then after I did the Wellstone race, after I did that, then I, I ran the Assembly Caucus and worked for Emily's List and the AFL-CIO, and then um, you know did all kinds of other races. Did Obama 08 and 12, and in 14 did. Mary Burke, where Keith kicked my ass, and then um, did the uh, did the Clinton campaign um, as well this last time. So, been done races big and small, and federal and state, and I'm really happy to be here with Keith, who I'll just say is to my right. <laughs> <laughs> so my history: I grew up in a small, sleepy town in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Uh, it's right on the Mississippi River. Uh, I grew up on the Wisconsin River. They both meet right to the south of Prairie du Chien, so. Uh, I'm affectionately known from that part as a river rat uh, growing up. I went to UW-Madison. I won't state the year at all. Thank you. Um, you. uh, I started out in genetics at UW-Madison, and I got to almost my full third year, and I was taking a lab class, and I had a UW professor come up to me in the lab class and say, Keith, do you have anything interesting that you're doing besides genetics? And I said, well, I'm starting to take some political science classes just because I'm interested. And he said, ooh, you'd be great at that. And I took that as a hint that probably I was not made to uh, be in a lab and study genetics for the rest of my life, So, uh, which 
the professor calmly explained to me afterwards that he thought I was probably best not to spend the rest of my life in a lab because I was too distracting and uh, kind of a boisterous, fun guy in the lab, evidently, that distracted from the work that needed to be done. Um, so after that, I started doing more uh, poli-sci classes and graduated with a poli-sci degree and then um, went to work for the legislature. Uh, my first boss was Representative Carol Owens and uh, a fantastic lady from uh, outside of Oshkosh. And I worked with her for about a year and a half before I went to join the Sheila Harstorff for Senate campaign. And that was my first campaign. Uh, it was my first introduction really to the campaign world and I loved every aspect of it. Um, after that, I spent a uh, better part of a decade in the state Senate running races and overseeing committee to elect a Republican Senate. And then uh, from there, I jumped onto the Walker campaign in 2009. Um, then Milwaukee County Executive Scott Walker launched his bid and have been with him ever since. Ran the recall, so I think that was, you, you asked what was the biggest win? I don't think I can beat that one. Um, and then I was his first chief of staff um, during Act 10, so uh, I've seen a lot of history over the time. Uh, I've been involved in U.S. Senate races with Tommy Thompson in 2012. I've been involved in congressional races actually in Minnesota. Um, and a number of other races across the country. So seen a little bit of everything, federal, state, even some local stuff. Uh, so well-traveled and seen a lot. So this, I mean, for, for me as a reporter, this may be something the audience isn't really familiar with, but like you two aren't really people whose names are in print ever. Um, but you're talking a little bit more. I'm, why, why is now, I guess, a good time for you guys to start sharing your experiences? And also, uh, how did you get to be friends? I mean, you, you guys get along. This is, there, it's proof that there's some, some kind of bipartisan friendship in the world, right? Yeah, I mean, we do get along. Um, I don't agree with a damn thing he stands for, really, but, but he's a nice person, and he's an honest person, and he tells it like it is, and he often, I will say that we can actually have real conversations and put the, 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 um, the shield down, I guess, occasionally, and that's how we got to be friends in doing this work, and, um, and we've done a few of these things uh, now, I think three or four of them maybe, and I think we're doing a few more coming up. So um, it's a fun thing to do. It's a healthy dialogue, and I think Keith is always honest and, and fair to me. So can't say that for everybody else in your party, but for Keith, I can. Now uh, say some nice things about me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I your was going to say, you did such a great job. I'd say ditto back about Tanya. But, I, I you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I think both of us have been involved in politics before I think staff and other political operatives kind of turned it into a kind of almost a war mm -hmm. at the end of the day as opposed to it's a it's a battle and then the day after the election you can kind of you know let your guard down talk about how you won how you lost compliment the other side for their success at the end of the day and you know Tanya's had some great wins here and and uh, helped a lot of good candidates win the state and I've done likewise but at the end of the day we're also very good at our individual crafts and I think we like like to compare notes and what were you thinking then and what was you know what what, what I was trying to decide or figure out that she was going to do with the Burke campaign and things like that and it's just fun and I think when you have 
people that are professional yeah. and friends at the same time. It's, it doesn't always have to be about politics. We also happen to have kids and we love talking about our kids and shared experiences. So, you know, you can get past the whole political divide piece if you're just willing to kind of let your guard down, be honest. And, you know, we're, you know, it's hard to say and you'll never hear from a politician or an elected official, but sometimes we're not right. And <laughs> sometimes we are wrong and it's okay to admit that uh, along the way. But, you know, for Tanya and I, I think it's always been, as she said, we're, we're willing to be honest with each other. I think we're at the point in life where you kind of look back and say, I've accomplished a lot, I've done a lot. It's okay to let your guard down and be honest with each other and, you know, compare notes. It's fun. And when one of us says, I'm not telling you that, <laughs> we respect that too. Because <laughs> that happens a lot too. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm not telling there you that. There are trade secrets. There are always <laughs> trade secrets. Well, Keith, you touched on something that I wanted to ask you about. Something that's changed is the mentality shift from this being a, a battle to it being really a, a blood sport and a war. Um, what else have you two observed in terms of changes in the Wisconsin political landscape over, I mean, we've, I guess, milestones being Scott Walker being elected, the recall, Donald Trump winning the first time a Republican won a presidential contest here since 1984. Um, other things, I mean, what, what, what else has changed in terms of the political environment here? Well, I'll go first and say that the stakes are much higher um, between the two, I think, um, you know, and the divisions are much deeper because the stakes are higher. Um, and because campaigns um, cost so much more money now for everybody involved, um, they're just they're just harder, I think, now is what, probably the first thing that um, at the top of my mind to answer that question. So what would you what would you say? Yeah, I, I think the challenge always is, is that you get so vested in outcomes that sometimes you forget about kind of the, the process or the, the, the journey to the end of the rainbow, if you will, in terms of, you know, success policy-wise or compromise or solving problems or things like that. So uh, in like Tanya noted, I mean, there's just a lot at stake, and I think everyone has put a lot of pressure on elected officials, and, and that's whether it's, you know, in the Dem Party or the Republican Party. There's just more pressure on candidates, more pressure from the supporters that back them and fund them, and they, they want to see, you know, achievements, accomplishments, and they're sometimes very impatient and our entire society is very impatient but especially in politics they want to see progress and movement almost immediately from day one and that is a true challenge to do and you know i don't you know sometimes we forget this but you know one thing i can take away from my time as a poli sci uh, student was you know this type of government was not designed to move fast it was supposed to be slow and deliberative at the end of the day and so it, it takes a lot to accomplish a lot in short amounts of time. But that pressure is never going away, I don't foresee. And I think also just the, the culture, pop culture, culture, society cultural aspects like uh, social media and mm -hmm. just this drive for the news media to break stories and get news out there. Just everything's on steroids and just there's a bigger microscope on everything you do, and that, that presents challenges. Well, and not only a bigger microscope in terms of, of that, but also we're not screwing around on the edges on a lot of these policy decisions that are being made. Um, and we're not talking about a, whether the tax code is going to change an eighth of a percent. We're talking about are there going to be unions or not. Um, those are really big things and really um, 
um, high stakes. And that, that means that div the divisions are deeper and oftentimes the, the gloves are faster to come off, I think. We've seen uh, wins for, for both of your political parties in big ways, in ways that don't seem to make sense. Um, Tammy Baldwin, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Scott Walker, Ron Johnson, all winners in the same state in a decade. Um, what is it about this state that allows that to happen? Um, well, I think a lot of it has to do with the environment that we were in in those particular times of those races. Um, I think we see that now, um, too. Um, I think it has to do with money. It always has to do with money. Some of those, can most of those candidates that you mentioned had more money than the others. Not in every case, but a lot. Um, and, you know, I think it's the it was the quality of the candidate in some cases, I would say, too. Certainly not all, but in some cases. And so, but really it's, it's about um, authenticity of the candidate, I think, too. Um, and it's about turnout. I will, you'll hear me talk about this a lot, um, particularly for our side, I think. I mean, a lot of the outcomes of, of elections for our side is really dependent on turnout, and which is why turnout for us is so damn important. Um, you know, so those are the first thoughts I would have about yeah. why that is. And, and, and we do have a pretty big swath of independent voters out there. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, while we all talk about uh, the disappearing ticket splitter, there's still a relevant piece of success in determining winners or losers statewide, whether Trump wins or Obama wins, it's still coming down to, you know, while, you know, in the late 90s with Tommy Thompson, you know, winning almost nearly 60%, you're not going to see that anymore. But the ticket splitter is still going to decide who wins a state, whether it's for governor or for president at the end of the day. And, you know, maybe that universe is 300,000. And I've, I've referred to them as the, the magical unicorn voter out there you know, someone that might vote Scott Walker and Tammy Baldwin. They do exist. They are out there. They're hard to find, but they, they are there. You just got to look hard for Maybe them. not this year. But. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, too, you know, and I, you're, I, like I already sort of spoiled this by saying you're going to hear me say this a lot, but, you know, turnout for our side, turnout matters almost even more. I mean, we, we still need to persuade independents and, and persuadable voters for sure. But turnout matters so much more for us. And, you know, case in point is the... 2016 presidential race where, you know, you know, Mitt Romney um, got more votes than Donald Trump did. So we didn't lose because we did, you know, we lost because we our folks didn't turn out. Um, so turnout matters a, a lot more, I think, on our side. You have more dependable voters all the time. Um, it's why you usually win special elections, but that hasn't happened the last couple. So, um, <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah, so there's yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, looking at losses, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking the 2012 primary for the Republican Senate race was a particularly bruising one for Republicans. Um, Democrats have had some, well, in the, in the general, too, obviously, but um, Democrats have, have not had a good run in terms of governor's races. Uh, what, what lessons do you think each of your parties have learned from some of those more recent state-level losses? I suppose I have to go first because I've lost more. Is that why you're, why you're shaking your head? <laughs> I don't know what that's like. <laughs> Remember when I said I liked him? Uh, take it back. Take, <laughs> take it back. It back. Yeah. You know, I think um, candidates matter. Um, again, I'm going to go back to that. Turnout really matters. Um, you know, and uh, authenticity matters. Um, I think we, money matters. I'm gonna go back to that a lot too. We always have a challenge with uh, trying to raise enough money to get our message out and compete with 
the other side. Um, but I think, you know, we've learned too that particularly, and I'll go back to what I mentioned before about the 2016 presidential race, we've also learned that you can't, on, the, on our side, you can't expect the same outcomes if you don't put the same inputs in, right? You can't expect turnout to be at 2012 levels if you don't do the things you need to, to do to make it so. Um, and that was a big failing of, of the Clinton campaign um, here in Wisconsin. Well, that wasn't the fault of us here in Wisconsin. It was a fault of Brooklyn not prioritizing Wisconsin enough um, to be able to give us the resources that we would need. So to, honestly, that was probably, that's the biggest lesson or the biggest sort of Worst loss I've, I've experienced, Mary Burke was hard, um, but at least with Mary, we knew that we left it all on the field as much as we could, right? We, there was nothing we didn't do that was in our power to do, and we lost. That hurts, but it hurts even more when um, you feel like you didn't do what you needed or you could have done uh, to make the outcome completely different. And I think uh, the number one thing be behind losses and wins that's the most important piece is candidates. Uh, at the end of the day, if you have a great candidate, I mean, no one can deny the fact that Barack Obama was a transformative uh, candidate at the end of the day. We can argue about the policies and the outcomes, but he was a transformative candidate for the country. You're for Obamacare now, so, no, right? No. Isn't that what that no. reinsurance program is all about? No. Oh. What we are doing is trying to fix a program that has been broken <laughs> oh. with the best available solution because D.C. won't fix the problem. And that's a I'll give you that. That's a critique of my <laughs> yes. party as well. Um, but yeah, candidates matter. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, running good campaigns matter. And being a part of 2012, what uh, in the U.S. Senate run, you know, there was nobody that I think was more popular than Tommy Thompson as governor. And I think to, even to this day, he still probably has a 70% job approval but yet he still lost in 2012. And I think that was a combination of, you know, Obama being at the top of the ticket, but also Tammy Baldwin being a very astute uh, politician in running a really good campaign. And she was ultimately successful. Um, so you can have great candidates, you can still lose, you can have bad candidates, you can still win. That's but, for sure, yes. we see that. <laughs> you see that all <laughs> the time. Uh, White House right now, maybe? On yeah. both sides, on both sides. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but I always have said that I learned more from the losses than I have the wins at the end of the day. And I, I would argue in 2006, I was running the committee to elect a Republican Senate, and we lost the majority that year, um, and it was, uh, you know, had nothing to do with our candidates or campaigns. When you're polling on a state senate race and they're saying, well, I want to send a message to the president, and you're like, this is the state senate in Wisconsin. What message are you sending in this race to the president? He doesn't care. But it, it didn't matter. We, we got blown out of the wa water, and my quote in the AP article the next day was, it's a Republican bloodbath, and we all lost. Okay. I mean, in, but, you know, I came out of that understanding what it takes to survive a bad political environment. In 2008, I did the exact same job and oversaw a number of races where we were expected to lose anywhere from two to three races, and we didn't lose a single one. And it was because of what I learned out of all those losses in 2006 that completely changed my perspective on, on candidates and campaigns and to this day still impacts me even in this election cycle.
Well, something you said just now struck me because you mentioned, you know, maybe um, state voters in state races wanted to send a message to the president. What do you think about that now? Uh, I don't see that. I mean, this was extraordinary in 2006. I, and I have not seen anything like this. Uh, and I don't know if you saw this with, you know, 2010 or 2014, but like you would read the verbatims and it was, there's so much anger in 2006. They were just, they weren't happy with the direction of the company or the country. They weren't happy with the war in Iraq. They weren't happy with the direct, just everything. They were just very unhappy. And it wasn't just Democrats, it was Republicans too at the end of the day who are not happy with the direction of the country. And so this is different because what I, my view of it is people generally don't mind the direction of the country and the economy. They may not like the personality that occupies the White House. And I don't think you can compare this current election cycle to an 06 or something like that because it's a different dynamic. It's more about the person and the personality and less so about the policy and the direction of the, com uh, of the country. Um, looking ahead or looking to now with the, the primaries that each of your parties are, are facing, um, I'm curious what similarities and differences you each see, um, Tanya, maybe for you more with other uh, gubernatorial primaries, whether it was the recall or 2010, um, 2014 wasn't really. Uh, a primary issue, but, and, and, and Keith, for you, um, whether you're looking back comparing the Senate race to any similarities in the 2010 gubernatorial primary that, mm -hmm. that you worked on or, or the 2012 race, just what dynamics do you see at play? What lessons have both parties learned in each case? Um, what, what's changed now? Well, I'll, I'll say living the 2012 uh, Senate, U.S. Senate race with Tommy Thompson, uh, I was not involved, I got involved post-primary. But, you know, walking into that campaign uh, after the primary, the realization of just what a toll that primary took, both financially and message-wise, was uh, startling, to say the least. And my fear is our party's on the path to experiencing the exact same thing. And Tammy Baldwin is a very smart tactical politician who I think is seeing a lot of similarities and probably preparing to exploit the same situation that we saw in 12. Well, I think you might assume that, we, that because of the gubernatorial primary having as many candidates as it does, that that is the fate, that is sort of the situation with, you know, sort of our party. And it's, I would tell you it's the opposite. I think in, what was the year when Doyle, it was the Doyle-Barrett-Falk primary, that was a year where there was a lot of those problems that, that I think the Democratic Party had in, in sort of reunification um, after that primary. I don't see that now. I really see, um, for the most part, if we think is what's probably going to happen is probably going to happen. Um, I don't think the sort of the reunification or the unification or the get up and goedness and right away. Um, I don't think we're seeing that. I think we're going to see our party come together very quickly um, and unite um, against um, you know beating Scott Walker. So I don't necessarily disagree with that point, but none of the candidates in this race I think can hold a stick to Barrett, <laughs> Kathleen Falk, and Doyle. At the end of the day, they were proven politicians in many different respects compared to the current Dem primary. My opinion. Although they're beating you. 
in some of the polls I've seen. Theoretically. <laughs> so. it, it, you know, I, I will always say this. Yes, the polls say that. But the problem is it's the numbers behind the numbers that matter. Mm -hmm. And I can pick apart a Marist poll in no time flat as well as the Emerson College yeah. poll. So the one that you have a harder time disputing, but not as always right, but I respect him as Charles yeah. Franklin, the Marquette poll. They're, they, you know, you gotta be wary on both sides of national pollsters coming into the state that don't understand our state and where, what Tanya talks about in terms of what that turnout looks like and what that enthusiasm looks like for each party in the election cycle. And I think Charles has a better pulse of that and does a better job. I, I don't think he's perfect in any way, shape, or form. And I think both parties have had times where we've disputed with Charles. Yeah, about when he doesn't not like fair, numbers. I don't like him. When, <laughs> when the numbers aren't my way, I don't like yeah. his polls. But Damn when they're going yeah. my way, he's a great pollster. That's right. So. That's right. <laughs> the other thing, too, to keep in mind, and I think Keith certainly knows this, and I'm sure everybody in the room probably knows this, too, instinctively, but polls are just a read of, of a, a slice of time, right? So many things can happen um, between now and then, and dynamics can change, and, and, you know, and just attitudes can change pretty quickly. It'll, Tell you again, you know, using the most my most recent experience in the Clinton campaign. I mean, most polls showed that we were going to win, including our internal polls, right? Um, but there was a high degree, medium degree of undecideds, and conventional wisdom will tell you that undecideds break a certain way, and we anticipated them to not necessarily break our way, right? We anticipated them to break. Uh, the other way by about two to one, they they, they undecideds tend to vote to the non-incumbent, and we viewed our we were pretty sure that the voters viewed us as the incumbent. Um, but what ha actually happened is a hundred percent, literally, of the undecided voters on, on the, in that last week, um, you know, went over to the other side, and so. Polls can change really quickly, particularly with what we call late deciders. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of people, not like any of us in this room, like. I know none of you are probably undecided in any race that is even coming up, but there are a lot of people out there who are what we call late decided, and they're also low information voters. That doesn't mean that they're not smart, it just means that they don't have a lot of information until very late in the game. And so that's why I think a lot of times polls are can be very misleading, um, and why what Keith, what you said is the numbers behind the numbers really are the important parts of it, really digging into those polls and making sure that you're viewing the or, or looking at the views of, of the of the of the important voters they're all important right but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna get emails about that I'm sure every voter matters <laughs> every voter matters um, but it is, the numbers behind the numbers are really important to your point yeah and, and I'll tell a story uh, which is somewhat disparaging toward the pollster our internal pollster uh, on the Walker campaign but uh, ahead of the recall uh, this is the Friday before election day of the recall. Uh, we got our final poll back, our final poll track, and it showed us down four points on the ballot. And so me and our general consultant at the time uh, were like, okay, let's get on the phone and just talk this through. And we, you know, he's walking through the poll numbers, this and that, and this is going to be a photo finish. And he got done, and I said, you know, I'll tell you what, whatever you your numbers say, I feel complete opposite. We are gonna win, we're gonna win by a bigger margin, and my gut's telling me you are absolutely wrong. You are absolutely wrong. 
And he's like, nope, this is what the numbers say. I'm like, well, election day, we're going to find out who is right. I was right. And the one thing I want to say is I think the media gets obsessed and the general public and, you know, people that are like to follow politics get obsessed with polling. And us that are in the campaign business, it's about gut. We, like, trust our guts. And you can, while you'll see numbers, at the same time, you'll sit there and go, no. I don't think that's right. I think you got that completely wrong. And I, I'm sure Tanya's had those moments too, where you just sit there and say, absolutely, you are 100% wrong and I know it because my gut's telling you. So as much as numbers and polls will be out there and everyone will pontificate about the latest poll, and then what's even more fun is old political hacks, like if I ever retire and what I hope to become, who get paid to go do TV shows or whatever, Start reading the polls and what they see publicly and tell you what you're doing wrong on your campaign. I hate those people. <laughs> Just hate them. And they Monday morning quarterback all the way. And, you know, but at the end of the day, it's us who are running campaigns that have been around the block, have seen a lot, and, and we're the ones that are counted on to keep a steady focus and not let those kind of stories, those numbers, these outside polls to distract from what What's the plan? What's the strategy? What's the message? Uh, I want to, and I'll ask this for each race, I want to hear first, which Democratic candidate do you each think gives Scott Walker the toughest challenge in November? <laughs> uh, you want to go first? No. No? Okay, I'll go. Nope. Fine, I'll do it. I'll, no, if you think I'm going to answer this question yeah, in this no. crowd, well, I mean, look at the bumper stickers out there. Are you kidding? Yes. <laughs> well... I've never seen a candidate ever commission a poll to specifically rebut a political pundit, but I have seen it uh, off our last panel. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens after this panel. <laughs> um, so I would say I don't know that I can narrow it down to one candidate uh, for the Dem field. And, and I think part of it is it's kind of first tier, second tier. I think the first tier is... Uh, clearly Tony Evers. I think he's ultimately going to prevail. And I think it will be a fact of uh, the other candidates just not having enough time and enough resources to ultimately compete with Tony. And so I think, but I think him, uh, Kelder Royce, and Malin Mitchell are probably the top three uh, in terms of the first tier. You know, Matt Flynn's probably around there looking in, but I don't think ultimately he's going to be successful for a variety of reasons. Um, <laughs> if he did, I'd love it, but I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, and then everybody else. Out of that group, I, I, think, I think no matter what, there's attributes to each of those candidates that would make things difficult, but there are also things in terms of messaging and positions and policies that we want that opportunity to differentiate between Governor Walker and whoever that Dem opponent ends up being. So I'm not, I'm not fearful of any of them in the first tier, and I'm not concerned about any of them, but there are going to be positive attributes, and, and they're going to run a competitive race. You know, ultimately, you know, one of the things uh, we were talking about in terms of questions here is, you know, what is Wisconsin? It's an extraordinarily deep purple state, albeit with a very small ticket split splitting population in terms of the voters. 
but it's still going to be competitive, and this is going to be competitive all the way to November, and ultimately we feel we'll prevail because we have a great record to run on, and we feel there's no issue where we don't have a list of accomplishments that we can go toe-to-toe with any opponent at the end of the day with. Well, I would agree with you on one part of that, which is I think they all uh, would most, I'm not going to say all, most would definitely pose a big challenge to you and, and could have a path to ultimately be successful. Okay, name names. <laughs> I won't do it to you. No. Well, <laughs> there's no press in the room, right? I can just, I can, yeah. <laughs> no, I, on, in, on, in all honesty, though, I, I do believe that the first tier is, is very similar, I'll mm-hmm. just say, to, with a, to the one that you identified, ones that you identified. Um, I do think that any one of those uh, candidates does have a clear path to being able to, to be the next governor of the, state, of the state of Wisconsin. I think that... This year is different. The environment is so different. Um, I think the environment is on our side. You've got to figure out how to shake the Trump drag. Um, I think you actually are pretty good at it, um, but I think that's going to still be a factor. Mm-hmm. I think there is a bit of Walker fatigue. Um, he's actually been governor for quite a while now, and you know, being an entrenched re- or incumbent, um, he is on probably, his fourth election, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but being an entrenched um, incumbent of, of any party, probably, uh, really isn't probably what, uh, what voters are really looking for right now. And then I, I disagree with you um, that you have a, sort of a better positioning on the issues. I think on you know, health care, roads, and um, education, I just think that even though you have really good things to say about that, I'm not sure voters are in a position where they're going to buy it right now. Um, so I'll... Leave it at that, and I hope you're still my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, well, Keith, you, you did say you, you think Wisconsin is deep purple. Do you agree, Tanya? Do you both think that the state's still purple at the end of the day? It, well, why? come on. If well, Obama and Trump both win this state, sure. it's got to be. But is it? But is it trending? I mean, is it becoming red, or is it still at the end? Is it still going to flip back? I mean. If you're talking about presidential, I, in, in a lot of respects, I think we should sort of cr- in cross 2016 off the list of a of, of factor because <laughs> there's just so many things that are not the same and probably will never be the same um, in that race. And, you know, including, you know, again, I know I mentioned it before, but, you know, there was almost, you know, certainly not the level of resources in 2012 spent on the presidential level as there were in, in the 16, 16, yeah. Um, in the Clinton campaign, and you know, so I, it's hard for me to look at that as like the, well, that we went red then, so must be a trend. I, I don't buy that. I, I believe it's purple. I don't believe it's it's trending red, and I think at like now it's sort of trending more back again, more blue. I will say Donald Trump will win this state <laughs> if the Democratic Party nominates a East or West Coast liberal that treats Middle America as flyover country. That would be my prediction. Yeah, I, 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 I don't disagree with the part about treating people in Wisconsin as flyover country. I absolutely agree with that part. I'm not sure where they're from matters. Um, you know, authenticity and all of the other things that we look for in candidates is really going to matter. I think energizing our base. I think we learned in 2016 that that's a key critical piece to all of our it's, it, that's not as much as of a thing for you guys. For us, it's a key critical piece, and we do need... Um, a candidate that is really going to motivate um, motivate our base, as well as not 
you're right, not treat like treat us like flyover country that like the previous one might have. <laughs> uh, we'll flip to the Senate race now, and I'll ask the same question: Which Republican candidate will give Tammy Baldwin the biggest <laughs> challenge? Now Keith doesn't want to answer it. <laughs> I think uh, I will go out on them. I think Vukovar is probably going to win. Um, I think she's going to have some serious problems. Um, I think if, however, Nicholson does win, I think he has problems as well. I think authenticity is a problem for him. I think even in his own party, people are trying to figure him out. Like, what? I don't, you know, he was mm-hmm. here and there. And, and I think people people read into that. They're looking for authenticity. I don't think he has it. Um, Leah Vukmir, on the other hand, I mean, if just take one look at that gun ad that she has, has with the gun on the table, and you just got to go, What? So I think she's probably going to win, but I, I think that either one of them um, will have a real hard time um, against Tammy. Well, as I stated earlier, I, you know, I think there's a challenge here of us repeating what happened in 2012. It's probably, I think, everyone in our party's number one concern is uh, GOP nominee emerging bruised, battered, and broke. Um, and so we're very concerned about that. Uh, I don't think Tanya's off. I think in terms of her analysis of the race currently, I think uh, Leah Vukmir has clearly established some momentum here as we close in the final weeks. Um, I think uh, the challenge has always been on Kevin's side to clearly demonstrate he, he is the conservative he says he is. And I don't think he's crossed that threshold in the primary. Um, now there's still a couple of weeks left. He could reverse that trend line or, or accomplish that task at the end of the day between now and election day. But, you know, right now I'd probably give, um, I'd, I'd say that Leah's probably going to win this primary, albeit probably very close at the end of the day. Um, and I'm sure that's going to set the Nicholson campaign <laughs> You're going to get emails so tonight. They may, they may be uh, already tweeting at me. <laughs> I, actually, I don't have a Twitter hand, handle, so they can't tweet at me. Um, but it, they may commission a poll to rebut what I just said, so don't <laughs> be surprised be by that. Good business for pollsters. Yeah, we yeah, yeah you know. I know. The pollster yeah. industry is going through the roof just because we say a few words on stage. For, for those of you who missed the last time these two were together, the West politics uh, thing, uh, our, our Democratic strategist here mentioned that Paul Soglin maybe didn't have a shot at winning, and, and there was a poll to rebut that. <laughs> a few days later. <laughs> a few days later. <laughs> Along with some comments that weren't so nice about me. Well, <laughs> so I, I don't necessarily buy into... Uh, tying Trump to a lot of what's going on in, in state-level races, and I, I don't like to ask a lot of Trump questions, but we, we have a Trump question here, and I also, as we've been talking, I think, um, looking at the Senate race, the last couple of days, we've seen a lot of uh, Trump talk in terms mm. of were the, both the, were either candidate with him from the beginning, does it matter? Does it matter that they said bad things about him? Does it matter when they came on board? Um, so I'm curious about that, sort of what role does, does Trump play in the Senate primary, if any? And also probably more looking at the general in, in the governor's race. Um, do, does that play a role there? Uh, well, I'll tackle this first. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let, let me start with, uh, you know, I, 
you know, it's a problem in both parties in terms of this purity test that goes on sometimes with candidates. It's unfortunate because there's good candidates that deserve to win and could win in generals, but then lose in primaries because they don't meet some obscene purity test that just is impossible, uh, impossible to pass. But that being said, um, you know, I, I don't think in this primary regarding the U.S. Senate that the ultimate loyalty to the president is the um, going to be the the final decision maker or decision point for primary voters. I just I don't believe it. I think what you see is a combination of Leah Vukmir being a state senator for a number of years, assemblywoman. Uh, a grassroots person for a number of years. So she's built up credibility within the party for supporting, you know, our candidates, our party at the end of the day. And that's where the strength of her polling, I think, comes from, um, you know, versus Kevin. You know, I think there's issues with respect to, you know, his conversion to the Demo or from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And I think that is probably more challenging at the end of the day. And both of them, let's just be honest about it. I mean, either one of them as the nominee is gonna be supportive of the president's agenda at the end of the day. I mean, it doesn't matter which one comes out of the primary. That is what the Republican nominee is going to be at the end of the day. And so I, I really think loyalty to the president is kind of a moot issue specific to our US Senate race. And I think it's a mood issue heading into the primary as well, uh, or into the general, I'm sorry, for the US Senate, because they're gonna be accused of supporting the president's agenda no matter what. So you might as well just own it at that point. Um, from you know, the general election in terms of the governor's race, you know, I think there's opportunities, uh, whether you know, it's Governor Walker or any governor across the state, I mean, each governor has, and each state has a different set of issues, and and there are cer certain things that may impact other states positively and other states negatively. And I think it's always within a governor's right to be able to express that um, belief that maybe something the president is doing is adverse to their state. And the governor has, uh, you know, stated a number of times on certain aspects of the tariffs that have been implemented that, that are gonna have adverse impacts on uh, manufacturers in the state of Wisconsin. So everything in this election cycle is becoming a question of loyalty to the president and everyone wants to play that up. But what I think most voters wanna know is if you're running for governor, and I'm just talking about governor, I'm not talking about US Senate. If you're running for governor and you're standing up for your state and advocating for your state, that's what they care about most. And at the end of the day, I believe voters make a distinguishment between people that are running for office here in Wisconsin versus those running for office in D.C. or are already elected officials in D.C. And they have an extraordinarily negative view of those people in D.C. And they have a way better view of the people back here in Wisconsin that are advocating for this state. I think too, the, the, the one thing that might be in, in your favor as it relates to this Trump question is, I think Trump has so gone, like jumped the shark, you know what that saying is? That yeah. 
you know, that it's easy for you to be like, that's not us, that's, mm, you know, and sort of take the good and brush yeah. away the side, so, or, or the bad. Um, and uh, I think voters might still hold you accountable for some level of what of his shenanigans um, and his ineptness, I'll say it. Um, but I do think that the more he does and the more outrageous he is, the easier it almost is for you to, to be able to step away. So, I, and I'm, there's nothing we can do about that um, other than beat you in another way. Yeah. Hey, he's a New Yorker and he's got a New York style of communications and media relations. And that's something brand new to this country, so. Uh, so we, we have a question from the audience that is asking why primary elections were moved to August. And I don't know, um, I, I'm sure you could both can speak to that, but I would maybe expand on that and ask how the August timing changes or, or affects the way these things Well, work. they used to be in September, and it was just so hard to get your shit together yeah. in that short period of time if you had a real, a real primary. And honestly, August is actually pretty late uh, in the scope of, of the country, so or where they lie in other states. Mm. So... I don't know. I, I think August is okay. I think May might actually even be better to do it because I think more people are, you know, August in Wisconsin is pretty dang nice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, despite, you know, our enthusiasm um, for the primary, a lot of people, it's just are not here or on vacation or otherwise occupied too. So, um, why did we move it to August? I think, I don't remember. You that, guys did that, that was I think. a military. Okay. Yeah. issue. So it's about making sure that you got enough, uh, you got ballots out in time for militaries overseas to vote. Look, I, the, ultimately I can say this, no, no matter what, incumbents are going to love September, whether you're Republican, or I'm sorry, August, if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you're a challenger, you're going to love May. It's not, it's irrespective of the party. Uh, so we're coming down to our last few minutes of this, and uh, I think we've, I was going to ask you both who you think is going to come out, but I think you've both said, you both agree probably Tony Evers and Leah Vukmir, is that? Uh, I didn't say that. Uh, I didn't you, say Tony Evers. You did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to say. No, I'm not going to say, because um, I, I think that there is, as Keith mentioned, I think there, there is a top tier. I think any one of them has a path. Uh, to be able to do it, I, I do think that it will be. It, Tony is hard to catch right now. Um, so, but I do think that depending on what happens, two weeks is a very short period of time, but it's also an eternity um, in politics. So, so I don't still know. Still, possibly a toss up. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. We'll you're, you're, you think. Leo I think Tony's going to win. Yeah. I mean, uh, the bottom line is he's got an early lead. He's built it up. He's got statewide name recognition. He's run statewide, albeit in spring electorate. But there's a base of support out there, and you have relatively unknown uh, opponents compared to him. And, you know, I think the Marquette poll two times over has demonstrated every single one of those uh, of his opponents were in single digits while he was going from 25 to 31, and you can dispute whether, you know, he had a big enough sample to get an accurate read, but you can't dispute the fact that it was, you know, a 20-point-plus lead. So, and this is all a function of money and ads to get your name and your message out there, and I don't think any of the candidates outside of Tony had enough uh, money and enough time to get their name out there. Okay, to close this out, I'm going to let you each take some shots at each other and say some nice things about each other. <laughs> and for your own party. Do that. Do I think you did a little bit. Do that? Yeah. 
I want you to just just talk about the biggest challenges and opportunities for both parties, for your own and, and for the other, heading into August and then into November. Well, I think, I mean, our opportunities are probably easier to state because of what we've seen happening recently across the country and here in Wisconsin with the special elections. I mean, uh, we have, I think the environment is a lot better uh, for us. I think that gives us a big opportunity. Um, money is always a challenge, and it will continue to be a challenge uh, for Democrats. We just don't have as much of it. We, this time, though, um, I would say have a, a bevy of really good candidates running in some of these legislative seats, where sometimes we oftentimes have a hard time uh, recruiting really good quality uh, candidates um, for Senate and Assembly. No, no offense to anybody in the room. Because, um, you know, good candidates win. Um, but we oftentimes have a hard time convincing people to, to do this really tough thing. And that has actually changed uh, uh, for us in, in the last uh, year. People are more willing now to step up in their community and be like, okay, I will do this. Be um, and I think that bears out in, in a much higher level and quality of candidates that we have seen in, in, this, last, um, in this last recruitment cycle. I'll just put it that way. Um, Again, challenges, money. We never have as much money. Um, I think the enthusiasm, though, is going to make up for a lot of that, and we've seen that in some of the recent special elections. Um, so I'm really bullish about our chances. I think, you know, the Senate... I'm, I'm bullish about our chances in the governor's race. I'm, I'm also with, with the state Senate. I think, you know, they need two to, two to flip, and they've got five targeted races, and they got some really good candidates in those, in those races. I think... You know, I don't think that Scott Walker this time is going to have big coattails. Um, and I think we just have a very much more motivated electorate um, on our side. So, Well, I won't dispute that the, the wind is in our face as a party from the Republican perspective and the wind is at the back from the Democratic perspective. And we've had this ebb and flow go back and forth between, you know, 08 to 10 to 12 to 14 to 16. And what you see is, you know, it, it kind of flows back and forth. And I think that's part of how our democracy is, you know, you know, constructed is an opportunity every two years to kind of weigh in on, on how things are going and how they feel about the direction of the country, their state, et cetera. Um, I think there's a lot of challenges for both parties. I mean, there's just there is a higher level of scrutiny for both sides. There's bigger or tougher litmus tests for success uh, to win your nomination at the end of the day. Um, but, I mean, the system still works. I mean, we still, you know, Barack Obama's president, Donald Trump's president, and in four years, there's going to be a referendum on Donald Trump's four years, and we're all going to find out what the you know, the American public thinks of his presidency at the end of the day. So we, we all have an opportunity to pass judgment with our vote uh, at every level of government. Um, and I think that's important. It keeps keeps people honest to a degree. It keeps uh, us employed. Keeps too. us employed. <laughs> I wish it would switch to an every year uh, oh, model. Oh that would be fantastic. Uh, increase profits 100, 200%. Um, Anyone that isn't acknowledging a tough political environment is not being honest from the Republican side. And what I've told people is there's two fundamental pieces that help overcome that. Getting out into your district, shaking the voters' hands, and knocking on their doors, and raising money so you can communicate your message and your successes at the end of the day. I feel like we can hold um, the Senate and the Assembly if, if our candidates do that. 
I believe we can hold the governorship. I think we could potentially win the U.S. Senate. But it's all predicated on the ability of that candidate to connect with the voters and raise the money to get their message out. And if they can't do those two fundamental things, they're never going to win. And that doesn't matter if you're a assembly candidate, a state senate, governor, U.S. Senate. You'll lose if you can't do those two fundamental things at the end of the day. So. And yeah, and 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 for us, it's also then you know really motivate our base voters too that who don't who don't always see yeah. themselves as voting in the off off year elections or non presidential year elections too. So, um, and I just I didn't mention the assembly. I don't think in my when I was talking about opportunities, but I am you know they have a shot too. I mean, fifteen seats is a lot, no doubt, but. You know, in Virginia, we saw it happen, more than 15 seats. Um, and Democrats right now are performing in Wisconsin since the 2016 election about nine and a half points above performance, above normal Democratic performance. And that would mean that that puts just a whole heck of a lot more seats in play if that if that still stays, if that uh, trend uh, continues um, in the assembly. So I would point out that in the Virginia uh, election, Predominantly, I think all but one of those seats that was a pickup was all in the D.C. media market. So it was hyper-localized to a very specific group of people uh, that were seeing what was going on in D.C. Right, but so. they still flipped 17 seats. Yeah, that's there's not, a lot. That's no there's story, a lot, but so. yeah. <laughs> well, technically it didn't flip. Well, I flipped 17 seats, but you guys yeah. won with a coin toss. Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we yeah, held the majority, coin, yeah, with the but coin we toss, lost 17. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one, of, one of my favorite things about doing these things is that we get people of differing perspectives in this room together, and we can have a civil conversation and maybe be friends at the end of the day. So I very much appreciate both of you being willing to do that and coming into this space and uh, friendlier territory for you. I know. we so got to give Keith a round of applause, yeah, we, applause we for actually, actually like walking yeah. into the lion's <laughs> den. I was told there was beer here. Yeah, I know. It'd be like, <laughs> Next, he's going to be like, okay, I came to your place. Now you, got, you have to come to rural yeah, Waukesha. Yeah. I'm like, no! <laughs> Country Inn and Sweets, is that what yes. it's called? Yeah, yes. No, yes. It's a fantastic place. The water slides are excellent. Uh, we should take our kids. Yeah, there you go. Right. We'll take our kids. That would be a lot more fun, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's get a round of applause for both of these two. Thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cap Times Talks. We release new episodes every month or so, but in the meantime, be sure to check out our other podcasts like The Corner Table, a show about food and drink in Madison, or a brand new show that we're calling Mad Splainers, which breaks down the intricacies of local government. I host that one, along with Abby, who you just heard hosting this talk, and our Metro reporter, Lisa Speckard Pask. Be sure to subscribe to Cap Times Talks on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating or a review. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for listening.